Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we are welcoming back Daryl Andrews, a professional freelance game designer and consultant. You may know him from some of his popular titles, such as Sagrada, Summits, Titanic, City of Gears, The Oregon Trail, and most recently, Batman, The Dark Knight Returns. Daryl, welcome back to the binge. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Happy to be back. Oh, it's it's great to have you. And I, I mean, I just mentioned a few of the titles you've been involved with. It, the list is too long. It would have been like a five minute intro. So I had to pick some, right? <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've got to work with some good companies and some good people. So very oh, thankful. I've, absolutely. So I, I would be remiss for a couple of things. One is I want to say to our listening listeners out there that this is the final episode of the year, obviously, because we're like two days away from New Year's. I just want to thank everyone uh, who has been a part of this journey with us. It's been a fantastic year. I know there's been a lot of hardship uh, for a lot of people, you know, with everything that's going on in the world. And, um, you know, having this little slice of, of joy for me has been kind of my thing that I look forward to each week. And hopefully the listeners have looked forward to it as well. I try to learn something in every episode. And uh, my goal, quite frankly, is to people that are listening or watching, there's a little something in there for you as well. So again, from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thanks for being part of this journey. Addition to that, uh, I would say that uh, we're going to get into Daryl's background, but we're not going to go as deep as we normally do into the background. If you want to check that out, go to episode 53. I can't believe it. There's been 90 episodes between the last uh, interview we had, Daryl, and this one. Like, it, it, I can't even get my mind around it. 90 episodes. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, it's a crazy amount. So, and I listened to it uh, today on the way to work, and uh, it was a great episode, episode 53. So, for those of you out there who want to get more, even more deep into the lore of Daryl Andrews, <laughs> check out episode 53. Yeah, I remember it. It was a lot of fun. So, oh, yeah. I, I hope people give it a listen. Now, for those who don't uh, do that, maybe Daryl, you can give us a, just a quick overview of kind of who you are and kind of what you do in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been designing uh, board games since 2014. Uh, my first game, The Walled City, came out with Mercury Games. And ever since, uh, I've been doing mostly freelance. I have worked for a few companies. I even started my own board game company for a year called Maple Games, which is still going today. Actually, oh, nice. just, just had a Kickstarter not too long ago, Octopus Garden. Uh, by that was yours. Out. I didn't know that, that was yours. That was not my design. That was uh, my old Your company, company, Maple Games. So no kidding. I, I actually signed that game to be published. So uh, a few years later than originally expected, but I'm happy for Roberta, a uh, phenomenal designer and an incredible design. Really great game. People oh, need yeah. to check that out. It actually, uh, it's a remake uh, because I fell in love with the original game. And I just love to also support Canadian designers. And uh, so that, that was a fun uh, opportunity uh, back in the day. But yeah, since, uh, um, you know, since 2014, I've got to work with a few different designers, got to work on some licenses, some fun stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or um, like things like Back to the Future, uh, Oregon Trail, you mentioned, Ghostbusters, uh, you name it. And, and most recently, got to work on a dream license with Dark Knight Returns, uh, which was kickstarted. And, and hopefully, will be fulfilling in the next couple months. I got a preview advanced copy. I got to see actually just a couple months ago at San Diego Comic-Con and uh, it looks amazing. So I'm really excited for people to 
finally get it in a couple months. Yeah, I was looking at the page uh, just before we went on air, and my gosh, like just the components, and I'm, I mean, people are watching can see the overlay I'm doing right now. The artwork is phenomenal. Like I've seen a lot of Batman games out there. Like if you search on Kickstarter, you're going to find a good number of Batman type games. But in terms of kind of fitting, I think the thematic, uh, this was, this kind of really hit it on the mark. Now this was actually a solo game though, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's very different from anything I've designed before. I've, yeah. I've made uh, board games that have a one player mode, but this was uh, originally uh designed with a, a solo play in in mind this was the catalyst was making a game for one player and then we actually ended up in the design process finding a way to include a second player that we thought was a lot of fun but but the original goal was to make a one player only game and then we we included a few extra perks to make sure that it played one and two player well but but yeah my first ever solo first design that's hilarious because you usually think like when I see Kickstarters, often there'll be like a multiplayer game and then they'll say, hey, you know, we're working on potentially if things go well, we're going to do a solo version as well. And I saw the reverse on that when you read the uh, the comments from this particular campaign, it was saying, you know, this is a solo game and hey, you know, if things go, we're working on maybe a one V one option. It was kind of yes. like a complete flip on convention, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially, I mean, not that we knew about COVID, but COVID proved that there was lots of people that still wanted to play games on their own or maybe with just a partner or a roommate, a family member and kind of work through something. So we were excited that that was true because we were already making it and designing it and hoping, you know, we, we use the example, you know, video games, lots of people play those by themselves. Yeah. So we, we tried to make the case and Cryptozoic believed in us in going for making a one player game. And then, like you said, the campaign people were asking we didn't want to just add modes that didn't make sense but we we felt confident that the the 1v1 mode would still honor the design and and be a really fun time uh we didn't add any other player modes because we didn't think the game was really made for that so uh I, i'm really excited for people to discover the game and get to finally play it soon and the minis were i mean some of the best minis i think i've ever seen yeah like minis the were cool. oh, they, God. The, they, they really like made it quite a deluxe experience when i finally got to see it i visited actually the cryptozoic headquarters yeah uh which isn't too far from san diego and uh it was really like i was a kid in a candy shop trying to contain but also enjoy uh all these cool minis and the and the batarangs the, the custom dice that have uh Wings, wings on, on the them. side yeah they, it was all really fun to play with so I'm, I'm very pumped how did you go about bringing this together like did this start off with you having a game that you brought to them saying look i think this would fit with the dark knight uh theme or is it more you know the the company was like had wanted to create a batman game and and then you kind of plugged in like how does that whole thing kind of come about yeah i mean i will say there's a lot of different ways for licensed games to come together and some publishers do it in different ways this one in particular uh thankfully i had a, a relationship with someone at cryptozoic who had just been kind of picking my brain about what were some you know licenses and game ideas and we got chatting about the possibility of doing dark knight returns and i i remember in our conversation kind of talking about how 
not only is this just like such an important book to so many people, but who would want to not play Batman? Like this is like the kind of game that if you were going to make a game like this is everyone wants to be Batman. You'd be fighting over who gets to be Batman. So that kind of scream, like maybe it's the kind of game that needs to be a solo game. And in that brainstorm, in that chat, um, you know, the wheels were in motion. I didn't realize of them then pursuing the license and then coming back to me and asking me if I'd, I'd like to do that. So that was, you know, it really came to be through relationship. It came together because a publisher had previous uh, good relations with DC. Uh, Cryptozoic makes some incredible DC games like the Deck Builder. And because they have success there and, you know, right place, right time, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So that license was in play then. So they already knew they would probably get the license, right? So that wasn't like... Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, they, they pursued it in particular. Um, they, they had relationships with DC on a, on a regular basis. But even like kind of like rewind, you know, we obviously did not anticipate it to take this long. I mean, in the yeah. whole making of the game, it, you know, it took probably three years. Wow. Uh, because of COVID and everything. But um, the original goal was, hey, what if we made a series of DC Comics where we focused on a particular novel that's kind of really important and crucial to each character? Is that going to happen now? I don't know. Um, probably not, uh, unfortunately, because the world's changed and licenses and all those kind of things. But that was the hope was like, hey, let's work on this, maybe with the goal of making it over the course of a year. And then it was a real roller coaster because that was the last Gen Con before COVID. And, and by the time we were, you know, thinking we we're kind of getting on a roll, then the world was starting to change. So turned upside down for sure. Yeah. I mean, you and I ran into each other last at uh, pro spiel North uh, here in Toronto. And, um, you know, when, I, when we were talking and then after, shortly afterwards, I saw images online of you going to PAX and so forth you know, we're both Canadians, right? So we're both uh, live in, uh, in central Canada here and, or central ish. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that the lockdown situation in Canada has been, it's been a much more difficult to travel, right. Uh, yeah. living here than say in some other countries. And how have you, how did you navigate that? Cause I mean, the number of pictures sure. I've seen on you, like on a plane <laughs> in <the> convention <laughs> hall somewhere, I'm like, sure. Sure. No, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not been convenient. I'll tell you that. And, yeah. and it has just been recent. I mean, when we think about, you know, the many, many months that we were all quarantined and needed to do that, that was great. Uh, I'm glad that we did. But as it became possible when it was, you know, you had to take some extra measures and steps, but it travel was possible and it was expanded beyond just essential workers. Then, uh, then I took up that chance to, you know, travel and reconnect with some companies. I mean, this is my full-time job. Yeah. And so for me, at least, uh, conventions and in-person meetings are, are unreplaceable. Um, some people during this time really found ways to go digital. You know, some people really thrived under things like Tabletop Simulator and doing Zoom pitch meetings and all that. Uh, for me, that wasn't, that's not a strength of mine. And so I knew for me to keep doing this, it was either I either had to find another job, which, you know, not the ideal time to look for work or, yeah. or take safety measures, but then try to get to convention. So, you know, ever since even uh, Gen Con and, and since then, 
you know, I, I attended Origins, I attended Essen, I attended, as you mentioned, Proto North, PAX Unplugged. Uh, each of these were, you know, intentional but strategic conventions that I wanted to get back to, start meeting with people, you know, wearing a mask, getting, uh, you know, testing before I depart, when I get back, you know, a week later, things like that. There, there was a lot of tests. I, I joked that at least my friends knew that I had basically get, got a test every week, it felt like, uh, and not just even just antigen tests, but PCR tests and all that because, you know, different restrictions depending on where you fly and where you go. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel very well-versed on uh, travel restraints and, and, and all the extra hoops you need to jump through, but I'm thankful that they're there keeping us safe. People are working hard and, uh, and thankful to be able to go back to cons because they, they really, for me, have reawakened kind of business potential and different opportunities. Like, so before things were kind of released, because there was no, at one point, there was no window as to, okay, when, when is it going to open back up? And it wasn't looking yeah. good, especially for Canadians, right? Um, did you have a backup plan? Like, did you start working on, okay, here's how I'm going to have to shift over to Zoom-based pitches and things like that, or Zoom-based networking, or? I, I Honestly, I, I, w I wish I had good backup plans, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I was trying like everyone else to do the odd meeting or try the odd pitch. I mean, some some publishers were offering kind of like online, you know, pitch events or like online conventions. I attended them. I would take some meetings. I I just didn't find they were fruitful. Mm. Uh, I didn't I didn't find that I was, you know, being able to get necessarily in the room with a decision maker. I wasn't finding, um, you know, even just like, it's hard to evaluate a game. Some people are better at, you know, making great videos, maybe, you know, a designer is already a graphic designer as well. Yeah. and can really make a sexy look and sell sheet. You know, I, I tried some of those things too. I mean, I even, I hired a few people to do some art assets to help, you know, presentation of ideas um, I collaborated with different people that those are strengths. And so some of those games were, you know, did better or showed better. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of not trying. I just, uh, just didn't really see that it was going to be a long-term viable strategy for myself. Mm. I, I often, you know, look back now and I say, you know, I really kind of focused on the few games that were already in the pipeline. If I didn't have those, I don't know what I would have been doing, but instead, you know, I did have some games that were already signed by publishers. So I just focus on working on those a lot, trying to make sure like the development and, and those kind of steps were done well and support yeah. those titles instead. And it was kind of like work on a few things and work on them deep instead of on high quantity. Yeah, I was, I attended a few, I think it was maybe, uh, I think it might've been Essen last year that uh, the digital version. And yeah. I mean, you can't replace it. Uh, and I've, and in my, my day job, I've attended digital conferences, right? Sure. It is not the same. It's not even close, not even like, the world's apart from in-person conventions, right? You have the yeah. whole camaraderie where you've, you're running people you haven't seen in a while. They're like, Oh, yeah. have you met so-and-so? So you have like this person introduces you to that person, you yeah. know, these kind of serendipitous moments that don't happen in a, in a digital format. Right. And no. Um, there's nothing like, you know, the elevator pitch when you run into somebody, right. Yeah. And, uh, you can't do that in digital format. So I can, 
I can certainly appreciate uh, the uh, the pain that this must have caused uh, in the in the thick of all this. Um, yeah. There is some people in our lobby that want to say hi. So we've got uh, Merlin uh, Petty said, hey, Games by Mondo, Eric Furston. Uh, they're all obviously big fans of your games. Uh, Eric was actually asking about but the recent release of Spider-Man No Way Home. If your game Sinister Six may receive some additional attention, perhaps expansion with more villains. Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. Great question. Unfortunately, not. Um, so a few people no. might know of the game, but sadly not. Uh, it didn't really take off as much as I had hoped. Uh, Adrian Adamescu and myself got to work with Spin Master and make a game called Sinister Six. No, cool. And it it was honestly, again, talk about Dream License. It was really neat because uh, the game came together uh, like in a really fun, fast way. We had designed a game that uh, structurally worked really well. And then when the opportunity for the license came, we were already working off of, you know, a fun working game and yeah. then got to pour all of our attention and love into making it very spidey uh, and, and really focus on the villains. Um, but sadly, like all licensed games, they're, they're very specific. So for instance, unless a game keeps doing well, that license usually expires pretty quick. So that's an example of, a game that I'm very thankful to have been involved with, but sadly not a lot of people know. So, so this recent circuit, what were you what were you pitching? Was there certain games that you were pitching, or were you more trying to make connections uh, to kind of plan like then the further year ahead? Yeah, I um, I definitely had a bunch of games that um, were in the hopper because over COVID, it's not like the ideas turn off. Uh, mm -hmm. There was definitely you know it slowed down because wasn't a very inspiring time, but, uh, but still some new games and actually some old games reverted back to me. So even, uh, for example, IDW was uh, a company that I signed a bunch of games with and worked with a few different designers and they got out of board games during COVID. So mm -hmm. all of the, the rights reverted back to me, not necessarily the licenses, but the game mechanics or the original IP stuff. So examples like a game like Roar, King of the Pride I did with them and I'm really proud of that and co-designed that with Erica Boyoris. That was like an example of a game that came back to us that then I was showing around. It was kind of fun to have like a published copy, but then say like, hey, the rights are all back. You know, is this something that a publisher might be interested in? And so that amongst, you know, some new designs and, and also some contract work were kind of what I was busy with. Um, especially Pax Unplugged, for example, yeah. I was less about pitching and more about uh, playtesting. I actually had a game that I have coming out with Goliath. I'm not officially allowed to announce the title or the license it's attached to. It's very unusual license, but um, that game, for instance, the deadline to get the files in is kind of like end of year. Like I was just frantically today working on some last minute icon stuff. And, uh, and so for me, Pax Unplugged was this great chance to just play test with a bunch of different people and, and try cool. to see. Was this you know, the one without saying the name that it, it uh, is. I saw at the Pro Spiel? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you saw it at Pro Spiel. It looked North. cool. So, <laughs> That's all I'll say. It looked you. cool. <laughs> yeah. So so that one, that one in particular, like especially December, was frantic. Like, yeah. if 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 people are willing to play test, I'll take it because it's been hard to be able to play test the same. And and the physical, you know, putting a game through the paces is, is really important. For anything from thinking about how long a turn takes, how long setup takes, you know, all that is really hard to measure 
when you're testing digitally. So tabletop simulator. I'd even say too, like there's a certain level of um, understanding in a protospiel uh, kind of format where the graphics aren't polished. Some of them might be just black and white. And, but there's a general sense everyone's kind of like, you got the personalities that come along with it. So yeah. it kind of tempers that, you know, the, the lackluster look of some of these in that environment, whereas in tabletop simulator, that same kind of basic artwork where yeah. maybe boxes on white cards isn't so great. Right. right. It, it, yeah. It, it really yeah. can get in the way. And like you said, like something like a protospiel North, uh, people are prepared to know this is a prototype, the expectations there, and everyone kind of works at, let's you know, look beyond that and try to make sure the game is a positive experience. But like you said, like you put that on Tabletop Simulator, it's sometimes hard to have the imagination or people aren't necessarily even used to play testing and they're looking for a yeah. polished game. And you end up spending most of your time talking about graphics or box covers, which are all important conversations as well, but doesn't always help with the play test yeah and certainly the uh the prototypes that i saw at uh pro spiel i mean there are some pretty slick well uh you know yeah some people can be uh, well really good prototypes yeah. yeah some some people got some pretty cool skills though also we saw some pretty neat uh kind of like creative ideas with gimmicky 3d yeah you know components which is important i i mean i don't say gimmick with a, a bad intent i think uh we need things that make people want to buy them and try them and play with them and have fun. So I was uh, talking to Joe Slack on that. There was a game that he, a butterfly game that he was, he was showing and uh, which it was in the table beside you. And it just, I know it stunning, right? Like yes. The prototype, which is all made by hand. It, it was an art piece. It really was. And yep. so I looked at that and right away as a publisher, right. Cause I've now published games. I'm looking at my, you know, is this now overpromising what right. the actual publisher will be able to execute in a financially sure. viable way? Sure. <laughs> right. Well, right. I mean, right. it's funny you should say that because that is a real problem too. I, I mean, I yeah. know uh, specifically that game you're mentioning because I've done some co-designs with Sylvain Plant, who was uh, on the tag team. Of, he's a smart of that. guy. Yeah. He, he's he's wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite humans on earth, and. Uh, it's funny because he will often create these masterpiece prototypes and, and it's, yeah. it's almost in some ways, there's a, a couple cons to it. And I've experienced it because I've pitched games that we've made together. One is, like you said, they're produced so well that sometimes publishers are scared off by the potential costs. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 we just had fun with a prototype, but you know, whatever a publisher thinks is the best viable product. Yeah. You know, we're, we're open-minded. The other is even on the development process, you start to get attached to the wrong things because mm. it's just so pretty or so cool or, and it's like, you know, once, once you overproduce, sometimes then you, you're not open to cutting what needs to be cut. So I almost want to really excuse the data a bit too. Right. So if you're sure. getting feedback on a game, right. And yep. it's like, wow, people love that they're in love with this game. Now yes. was the production quality part of what driven you know drove right. that and then right. when it now goes to the to mass market is it going to have the same appeal right sure sure i think that's really a valid question it's an important one to ask but then also shows uh on the flip side like if you do come up with a cool game and then can also have amazing production you can uh, really 
you know, wow people because people do have a lot of fun when something's just well produced. I think it certainly helps too with the pitch, right? Uh, like again, I know I'm flip-flopping back and forth here, but when I think of like Sylvain uh, and I was looking at the different prototypes he had that, that week, right away, you're like, you know, how can I, how can I work with this person? Yeah. Yeah. Right? That this person obviously cares about quality, yeah. uh, impeccable attention to detail. There's obviously a lot of thought that goes into what they create. They're not just slapping something together. Right. So I Absolutely. think there's a lot of kind of um, equity kind of comes yeah. along with that as well. well it, it shows also just like the creative possibilities. I think yeah. another designer that I point to that, you know, uh, has this advantage, but also disadvantage. And I've talked to them before is Julio. Um, he made a uh, Holy and he made control by Pandasaurus and a mm. few others. His prototypes are the same way. They're these gorgeous, well-produced uh, prototypes. And at least then that opens some doors so that people are curious to to see what he, next he's making because he is prolific and he is creative and i think sylvan's another example of that where um people see it and they're drawn in and we want that we want to we want to make games that capture the imagination we want to make things that make people smile and want to touch it and lean in and watch so these are strengths but they can you know every strength can also work against you sometimes Jumping back to the, uh, when you made the comment of the licensing or not the licensing, but the rights to the game that you got back uh, this yeah. year, how does that conversation go? Right. So I'm thinking for other people who are out there who might be looking to have a game and they end up signing with somebody and you know, just probably put a clause in there that there's, you know, certain limitations that where the rights return back to you if certain things yeah. are not met. But how does that conversation happen? Like when, when yep. they, when they realize, is it, it was it based on a clock? Like here's now we're at the time we have to have the discussion or, or how right. does that flow? Yeah. Well, I think this is a really important clause or section of all contracts that mm -hmm. often isn't talked about, but I think it's really important is thinking through what measures or what, you know, measurable data before a game should come back to a designer and, and what comes back, what does that all entail? So, yeah. you know, how is that triggered? How do you exercise that? And I, and I encourage designers to think about that even from the get-go. So maybe it comes back, for instance, if it's not produced by a certain time. So you can have a real, you know, actionable point in your contract of mm -hmm. saying, you know, if this game uh, isn't manufactured by blank date, you know, maybe the right should come back. I, I even have had contracts either with an advance or what I call as a kill switch, where if a game comes back to you and never gets made, maybe there's a fee attached to that for that time that's lost. Yeah. Uh, designer you know, thought this game was going to come out and it took, you know, much longer and then never came out. Well, there's a little skin in the game where it says, you know, here's maybe uh, some type of compensation for that, that time lost. So that's a, an area that people can negotiate in their contract. And then another one is obviously on the back end. So thinking through like how long before, you know, you go to the point of, okay, well, we tried you know, let's move on. Let, you know, let's walk away and, and I'll be agreeable. You know, this is business. And so let's just f define those terms, you know, make sure everyone's on the same page. So that might be, you know, a lot of contracts will be like for X amount of years, four years, five years, with maybe some type of renewal, if the game's continu continuing to sell or, you know, an option to exercise, like, do you want to renew it? Is the designer get to, you know, submit something or the publisher where it says, you know, six months before five years, you can submit to either end it or it renews every two years, or there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of structure it. For instance, IDW, 
the idea in our contract was that they a expired at a certain amount of time uh especially if there was a zero sales which once they were getting out of the board game yeah, business sales, they, yeah. they knew that and thankfully they didn't wait uh that clause they recognized that and they actually reached out and said you know let's let's actually set up a document so that you have um kind of assurance and that you can mm. confidently go to other publishers and say i have the rights back for this so oh, they actually nice, yeah. they actually set up a release form um just kind of specifying that you know the rights to the game the mechanics and everything thereof is back to the ownership of the original designers and and so that that has been helpful i know a, a couple games uh even from then um have been offered contracts and stuff like that so that's uh it's nice to reimagine or, or revisit some old designs. Other ones we pitched and then realized, ooh, there's some edges that we'd like to change or some things that we'd like to redevelop. We've learned a few things over the years. So then they find like a new voice or a new kind of story. What do you do with a situation where I know a lot of publishers, um, when, they, when they sign a game, then they're signing the rights to do what they want with that game, right? Sure. And that often might result in changes to the kind of how the game plays and certain mechanics sure. they might introduce and so forth. So when you get those rights back to the game, is it kind of excluding those changes that were made by them or right. how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the interesting things, again, I'll use IDW as an example. It's kind of easy because sure. they're not in games anyways now, so they're not going to slap my hand for this, but like, for instance, uh, Adrian and I, we had sold them a game called uh, Jungle Joust. And it is about, you're literally riding on rhinos, jousting each other. And we had kind of like a dream idea of like having different cool. animals and you could switch which ones were on which. Um, but we designed it as a two-player only game. Uh, when we submitted and signed it, they ended up turning it into a six-player game, uh, up to six players. Um, and how would you do that with a jousting game? Good question um it's not it it actually had to add a whole nother mechanic of betting yeah. almost a la like a camel up in that like okay gotcha yeah you're not love you, that game by the way you yeah. influence the the joust but you bet on the results and so mm -hmm. everyone can influence or bet and and it was fun and they actually included us in all the dev of that but that was with very specific goals and and you know specific needs in mind probably uh the future version of that game will be a two-player game because you know in the long run mm. for that game we realized no i think jousting you know you think two players you think two things crashing at each other we'll cook that down but it it was all that extra work still like kind of reverted back to us in that contract that's not to say that it always does so it's important to specify that you know if for instance um i've had games come back to me where they say you know the name the art and like the tone or style we're keeping all that like that is you know prop you know intellectual property that we created for that game you can have your original you know rules back but you know please you know morph that into a new direction and and that's fine too i just think it's really important to like have all parties on the same page make sure it's clear yeah because if it's something where it's literally like a license right like a batman yeah. for example um, I mean, they're not going to hand you over no. that license, right? So now does it become some other superhero that's maybe a generic superhero? Right. But to your point, they could say, well, it can't be a superhero because it's still kind of right. competing with what we've we've created, right? Yeah. And some some you just have to walk away. You have to say like it served its purpose in this time, yeah. but it might actually be easier or less work than trying to shoehorn it in a new direction. 
you know, maybe a fresh start and a fresh take. You just take the principles you learn from that. Yeah. And, make, and there's make so many ideas out there. I mean, gosh, yeah. as you're saying, like every single time I sit down to play a game, my, my brother and I always will take a side bar like halfway into or even more setting the game up and like, Oh, you know what we should do? We should do a game like this. And, you know, boom, another idea for a game comes out of like thin air. So yeah. um, I'm sure there's no shortage of ideas out there that you can, uh, you can pursue. So where, where's your, what's your plan now going into 2022? Um, have you kind of look, have you have a new focus or are you kind of still charging ahead with the current direction or, I know a lot of people have looked at this past two years, which has just been an absolute crap show and said, you know what, I'm going to take a step back, sure. kind of evaluate things, and I'm going to kind of pivot a little bit. Is yeah. this something you've gone through at all or, or what are yeah, your Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think COVID has influenced me and, and mm-hmm. I can talk about that a little bit. But, but also, I just think it's a good practice and like yeah. this time of year to just always kind of evaluate. I mean, we like games. We like strategy here, right? So, I yeah. mean having a successful year takes some planning, takes some, you know, intentional choices. It takes some slowing down, reading the room. So I think it's really important. uh, And I try to do this every year to see what has been working, what isn't working, be honest with myself, slow down enough to like kind of be able to be self-aware and listen and then, and then project, try to, you know, come up with some business plans moving forward where you see some opportunities or some needs. And I think one in particular that I'm really excited about and doors have you know, slowly been opening is, is opportunity to bridge uh, what I would describe as mass market uh, companies like the Hasbro's, Goliath, Spin Masters, and then hobby market where I, you know there's phenomenal companies that seem, they're, they're pretty close to mass market anyway, even a CGE with like code names is a pretty mass market game yeah. or like just one with repos, but they're still like they're hobby companies. They're the ones that are at these like board game conventions. I think there's a lot of space in between. I think mm-hmm. we're seeing examples like code names and just one and, and whatnot that are proving that they do really well in mass market, but not a lot of attention has been spent there. So I'd like one of the things that I'm trying to focus on is working on trying to make games that, that could actually meet both audiences and try to bridge even those relationships. If there's opportunities to find, you know, ways for publishers to work together or for me to pitch games with, you know, some type of agreement like global versus North America, things like that. So that's one area that, that I'm really focused on and aiming on and trying to kind of up my game, learning how to pitch, you know, to Hasbro, how to pitch to some of these places, going to conventions like toy fairs and stuff, instead of just, you know, hobby board game conventions. So that that's changing the way I work a bit. The other for me, and, and people may really disagree with this one is I, as much as I think there's opportunity to make some elegant uh, games for that space in between, I think there's also a market for more complexity, but still in shorter games and smaller games, things like that. I think we only think of complex games as these giant box games uh, with, like you have to learn them over, you know, a day or two. And I think there's some space now where we've, we've played a bunch of games that took 20, 30 minutes. Maybe we can, you know, find a game that's kind of like a follow-up or you start to get into the hobby a bit more, or you're looking for something a little crunchier, but it doesn't have to be a $150 investment. Maybe there's yeah. some games that we can still buy for 50 bucks, but it runs for 50 minutes. And, um, so that's another area is like 
still being mindful of component costs, still being mindful of size, still being mindful of price point, but still having some complexity. I think people are really open to learning games because they want to play them a bunch of times. That's awesome. It, it's always amazing talking with you because you're, you're very good at the 30,000 foot view. And then you can go super deep on any topic, which I think is awesome. I want to wish you all the best in this coming year, 2022. I think we all deserve to have just an amazing, amazing year. Any of the listeners out there, uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, thank you again. I hope you keep coming back. We're going to try to keep getting uh, some newer content for you and some other ideas and uh, try to find other parts of the industry that maybe we haven't even touched yet and get guests on our show to, uh, to learn about that. So again, I just want to wish everyone a happy new year. Thanks again for listening and you take care. We'll talk to you in 2022. Cheers. This has been an episode of the board game binge podcast hosted by James Staley produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.